If you're ready for freedom from the grind, then passive income from real estate investing is the best way to get you there. If you don't know where to start or what to do next, then the Rent Roll Radio Show is the best place to get you there. Join us while we discuss the best practices, strategies, and mindset you'll need and give you actionable content to get you from where you are to where you want to be. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined by Satch Bernhardt, Bernhardt with a T. Um, Satch, thank you so much for joining the show and uh, welcome. Hey, Sterling, thank you for having me. So um, we actually recently partnered on a project where uh, we both uh, worked on a really big project together with Elevate, and that's how we we met was when we were touring the property in um, in in Houston a few weeks ago. So um, I also learned a few other things about your 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 past as a pilot and your your you know a wholesaling business that you have and what you're doing to help um, pilots create financial independence. So I want to dive into all of that because I think it's all super interesting. Um, can you kick us off with your your backstory, kind of what you were doing before, uh, how what changed, and then how you got to what you're doing today? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... So my story, uh, I started flying for the airlines when I was 21. I knew I always wanted to be a pilot. And back in 2018, um, I had already been flying for about five years and I wanted some extra income. So I started finding ways to make extra money. I stumbled upon wholesaling real estate. We can talk a little bit more later on on what exactly wholesaling is Dude. for the people that may not know. Or you want to explain it? Do, no, we can circle back to that. But my my initial question is: Do pilots not make a lot of money? I assume pilots made a ton of money. Yeah. So good question. You start off well now. Now is interestingly enough, they raise the first year pay if you start the originals. Uh, you start off like no less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, like brand new pilot, first officer, which is like the co-pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, back when I started my first year as an airline pilot, I made $25,000. This is back in 2013. And so the it was super low. Um, so four years went by and the, in, the increments are not really that drastic back at the regional yeah. level back then. So that's why I was looking for other uh, sources of income. And so in 2018, I started my wholesaling and flipping business. I started doing well, more than what I was making at the airlines. It wasn't enough for me to like just say, I'm going to quit the airlines, you know, but I knew I was doing pretty good. So 2020 comes around and the pandemic happens. So my airline shuts down, right? And keep in mind, this is our airline at the regional level. We were like one of the best ones. We were the ones that had the longest history of being around and surviving all of the downturns that had ever happened in the aviation industry. So we were all sure that nothing was going to happen to us, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the pandemic comes, dude, and just, we went out of business. And luckily, all I did was, to me, was just like, okay, I'm just going to go all in into my uh, real estate business and really make this work. So uh, it was kind of like a burn the boats type situation. It really yeah. took off and I started making really good money. But what I did notice was that, um, and I'm going to go a little bit into my the mission that I have in real estate now, which was what I noticed back then was a lot of my peers that were at the airlines, they were struggling because they uh, not only got um, furloughed from the airline, but 
also nobody else was hiring because of the same reason that we got shut down, right? So sure. all of these guys were literally on the streets without a job and they struggled for a long time until they got hired somewhere else. So that's when I realized that this is not the first time that I ha that has ever happened to the aviation industry. It happened in 9-11, it happened in 2008, it happened in the pandemic, and I'm sure it's going to happen again, you know? So I figure if I can find a way to help pilots to be financially secure, they whenever next event happens, they're going to be set. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there at the end. That's my mission with real estate, how I was able to turn something around from uh, really going pretty bad to hopefully I can help as many people as I can in the aviation industry. Awesome. So um, where, you, where do you live now? In Orlando. In Orlando. And where are you from? Mexico. Okay. And um, were you were you born in Orlando or you were you were born in Mexico? No, born in Mexico. And when did you when did you move to Orlando? In 2010. I finished high school and I you came went straight to straight into aviation school. So mm -hmm. you I mean I, I I don't know the first thing about aviation school. So it's is it is it like a 3-year program? No, you can do it two ways. Uh, you can. There's colleges that offer aviation combined with a degree. So it's like a four-year degree. And while you're getting your degree, you're doing flying on the side. Or you can literally just go to a fly school and learn how to fly. And it can be, it took me like a, a year to get all my licenses. Awesome. Now you cannot fly for an airline just by getting your licenses. You need to get the hours. Uh, the most common route, and which is what I did, was I became a flight instructor. Strangely enough, you can be a brand new guy with a license and you can start teaching people how to fly. Sure. Um, so that's a typical route. So I did that for uh, about two years and I got my 1500 hours and then I went to the airlines. And so you don't fly at all anymore? No, only for fun. Every once in a while I'll go for fun, but yeah. Awesome. So let's dive into the wholesaling and flipping business. So how did you get, first of all, how did you hear about that? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, and I know what like you I mean. Did, because I, did, I didn't even know that was a thing until I was like 30. So like, where <laughs> did you stumble upon, upon like the educate, the, the non-traditional education that led you down that path? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, my wife was a realtor at the time. She hated real uh, being a realtor, um, driving people around. And I wanted to, uh, while, while I was trying to figure out what I can do for to make some extra income while I was flying, um, I had always been drawn to real estate. So I said, you know what, I can probably do something in real estate. And but after seeing my wife doing driving people around looking at you houses and say hey, i don't want to i don't want to you do don't want to be on that side of the table anyway <laughs> yeah and so i was talking to the guy that owned the brokerage where she worked and i was telling him this and he says you know what um i said i don't want to get my license is there anything else i can do in real estate and he says you know i heard about this wholesaling thing um he says i i have a book here read it and see if it's something you like you know and so I just took that book and I read it front to back. And it, it was super basic on like explaining what wholesaling is. What was the uh, book? It was called, it was some weird title, like The Goddess of Wholesaling, <laughs> uh, something like that. Man, no, it was, I don't a, even it was remember. a pivotal point. You should have that on the on the shelf next to the Schwartzman book. I, I know. Yeah, yeah. I should, I should bring it up. I probably have it somewhere in there. Um, uh, 
it was super, super basic, very outdated. I mean, like the instruction that this book gave was like put bandit signs, you know, and and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So that was the turning turning point. So how did you ultimately get started? Like what what um, what direct to seller marketing techniques did you find that worked? Yeah. Good question. And just for the audience that may not know what wholesaling is, right? Wholesaling is we essentially get contracts on properties and we sell our right to purchase that property. That's really, that's our, that's the thing that we possess that we can sell, right? We can't, we don't sell properties, we sell contracts and we sell it to flippers that already know what we're doing. And we just make the spread between whatever we have the property contracted for versus what they're willing to pay for their contract. Um, so dude, the techniques, the techniques that uh, like the direct to seller marketing that I was doing first, I tried every single thing in the book and I did everything, everything wrong that you can think of. <laughs> um, just to give you an idea, I went, the I read in the book about the bandit signs. It did not say how many bandit signs you should put out. Right. And so I put just out, went, uh, about three. three. Yeah. How about three, dude? <laughs> about three bandit signs. <laughs> Um, I went to Staples, I grabbed my marker. I, I have a photo. I'll show it to you at the end of the, at the end of the show. And I just put there my, I even put my personal cell phone and I, and I put, we buy houses cash, put my personal cell phone. I went to the busiest corner in the city where I was living at at the moment. And, uh, I just put the three bandit signs on, on each corner. Same, no, co same corner, same corner. Yeah. So yeah not yeah, only just, did you only have three signs. <laughs> But you only had one intersection. <laughs> yeah. And I waited, I waited, and nothing happened, right? And I did the same thing for like maybe two weeks. Like I'll just go and not every day, but like it's, it's always sporadic. So like my Air Force, what I discovered from doing different things, uh, very sporadic was that you don't really become successful until you pick one strategy. Everything works. By the way, I did my first deal from Bandit Signs, once I was talking to another guy that I found out he was also wholesaling and I explained how frustrated I was because I was putting my three Bandit Signs and nobody was calling me. And he says, dude, you gotta put a hundred, hundred Bandit Signs. To me, that was seeming like crazy. I was like, dude, a hundred? Going from three to a hundred? So I was so frustrated and I said, screw it, I'm gonna do it. I went and bought a hundred Bandit Signs and I just went on a Friday night and blanketed the entire city. Now, <laughs> big disclaimer, don't do this. Right? Did you get a May, call from May. City Hall? <laughs> it may be illegal wherever you are. Check the rules first. Um, but dude, I, I did my first deal from that one time that I just went on a rampage and put a hundred bandit signs. So that's when it like the light bulb went off and I said, you know what? It's it's volume what gets things done, right? And so I kept putting bandit signs. I did a couple more deals through there, uh, but I just it was illegal where I was. So I was getting all these calls from code enforcement all the time, just telling them, telling me that if they found me, they were going to come get me and find me and, and all these things. So I just obviously don't want to be going against the grain. Right. So I said, okay, I got to figure out other ways. Um, and I stumbled upon, upon uh, cold calling and yeah. I figured that was probably the way, the thing that I could scale the most just because I could do it from my house and I could do it on the computer and I can I can use the time to, I was essentially targeting people on my own time instead of like sending out a marketing a direct mail campaign and waiting for them to call me. What if I was flying? 
you know, sure. so that that just that just didn't work my schedule. But I could call people when I was off and get deals that way. So um, I don't know if you want me to go fast forward to where we are now. No, I'd love um, to hear the rest of the story. How did that and and full disclosure, as as so often I do on these shows is is I, I you know, for personal greedy reasons, want the answers. Um, so we decided we just recently decided we bought. You know, we do apartment complexes and we do single family houses. And um, I've I've never done any direct to seller marketing. So all of my every single family house I've ever bought, I bought from a wholesaler. And I, I did the math and I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in wholesale fees over the last couple of years. And so I was like, and that and and because I was just always too busy to do it. But now that I have employees. I'm like, all right, y'all guys do it. Like go find, you know what I mean? Go find the houses, go market directly to the sellers. And it's so funny that you, cause that my first employee, we tried to do it about a year ago and, and he was just too busy with other things, but he did what you said. He went and bought three bandit signs and put them out and the phone never rang. You know what I mean? So now we've got, now I'm trying to get my second employee that I think might be a better fit for it to go in and do it. And, and it's like, Every, every, you know, every different YouTube video tells you to do a different way. You know, every training course tells you to do a different way. So we send out these type of mailers. We send out those type of mailers. We paid this company that's going to do some online Google ads and stuff and sell us, you know, leads. So we've got the batch leads and the, the text message campaigns in queue to go out. So I'm just, I'm curious for somebody who's been successful in the space, what works so that I can hang up here and go tell my guy, Hey, scratch that, throw away this because Satch said, this is going to work better. Yeah. So I, I said, everything works. Um, as long as you do it for long periods of time and you do enough volume of whatever that one thing is, you'll be successful. Um, wh what I find out that, that people, what I find out that all these people on like YouTube channels and stuff uh, that they say, go, go do it this way. Like, let's say you have two people talking about direct mail uh, campaigns and they're both talking about like two different strategies. I think both work as long as you do the, you do either, either one for long periods of time. Right. But I, I've, the, the thing that I know the most is cold calling because we are 100% uh, a cold calling only uh, strategy. So, okay. And, and who's doing the cold call? I imagine it's not you anymore. No. So we have a team of 18 cold callers now. And wow. they're all from Nicaragua. Um, okay. We went through a lot of phases of this. And, and, and so I'm very happy to speak about this because we already made all the mistakes. You know, yeah. so I'm going to give you the... I'm trying, the, to, what I'm trying to skip them. Yeah, yeah. You're going you're gonna <laughs> to get to the shortcut here. Um, I don't, we just scratched the Filipino. We try the Filipino. We don't like yeah. them. One that they're working during the nighttime for them. Right. So they're working whenever our daytime is, is the nighttime for them. So their performance is always not the best. Their, their, their lifestyle is not the best. And we had them for a while and I just didn't enjoy that synergy of work. Sure. Um, so we started looking for Latin American, um, yeah. uh, VAs that can help in our company. Um, we have. And we started hiring one by one just to see how it was. And dude, they were super, super, super they're awesome. They are literally like having a US person just because they're there's almost no accent. 
they understand the jokes they understand the culture right. many of them right. sometimes even lived here in the states for a while so yeah there's uh, a weird there's a there's a weird like disconnect with the the language with the filipino you know it's 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 so weird because i've heard I've heard two different like, but, but the, whereas the Latin communication is just so much closer that you like yeah. get the jokes better and you get the nuances and stuff. I've heard two other people that, that had a, like a Filipino based service and they were like, Oh, well, you know, certain, certain um, people in America don't like these services because they're racist. I'm like, what are you talking about? It has nothing to do with racism. I just like, like you can't hold the the proper conversation because of, of the communication. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that would be an excellent avenue. I would love to, you know, offline connect with you. If you have yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, so so then we we went that route. So we started. Obviously, we don't do I don't do cold calling myself anymore. We started hiring, building the team out of cold callers, and we started off by first hiring those cold callers. And I was still doing the acquisitions, and my partner uh, he was doing the dispositions. So as we were building the cold calling team, I was still looking up putting properties under contract and then he will be selling them. Um, the There's really no secret to it. Um, a lot of people ask me like, what list works? We literally just call everyone. Uh, we have, because of the volume that we have, right? So sure. having 18 call, 18 call callers, we don't, we cannot be pulling out the, the foreclosure list and the, uh, tax delinquent list from the counties is not going to be enough data. So, so, so where do you get the list? I mean, like what you, are you literally just pulling out a yellow pages phone book and saying, all right, call everybody in it. Or no. So like, let me, let me give you a more nitty gritty systems and lists. So we use ready mode is it used to be called send call for a lot of people that already know about dialers it used to be send call. Now it's ready mode. That's the dollar that they use. Um, the list, we use a company called PropStream. Yep. Um, prop stream. Probably no prop streams. That's where we pull the list. Uh, super basic. We're just we have what, a very simple. What, what inputs do you put into prop stream to generate the list? Yeah. So we just do um, um, vac is whether it's vacant, owner occupied, absentee, or any of those. We just do all of them, right? Regardless yeah. of whatever vacancy to uh, vacancy situation it is. The only filters that we filter out by is at least a three bedroom, two bath, no older than 1950. That's it. There is no other filters. We don't get fancy uh, with any more filters. That, so, those, you're, that's it. so you're calling a bunch of people that, that may in no way have any type of distress situation. Correct. You're calling literally everybody on the street, regardless of like they recently got divorced or they're late on a credit card payment or early foreclosure. You just call like, you might call me and you might call my mom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My, my only advice there will be depending on where you, what stage you are, um, you will want to filter out by, yeah, you probably want to stay in the, in the distress um, bucket of lists. Right. So like go after the yeah. proof of closure, go after the property vacants, go after the, uh, tax delinquent liens, uh, code violations, stay within all those. Right. It's a little bit of work to figure out where to obtain each one of those lists. A lot of them, a lot of them come from like the County websites. A lot of them you can pull from prop stream, but not all of them. So it does take a lot more work to figure out where to obtain them. Um, so when you're as when you have a smaller team, let's say, uh, it depends also on your area, right? Three to five callers. You can probably, still 
be okay pulling that data and have them call that. And it's obviously going to be more targeted because uh, the percentage of people within those lists that have more motivation to sell is greater as opposed to just calling everyone, right? Um, we, yeah, we got to a point where that was not enough for us. It was just not enough people within those lists. And you will be surprised at how many people are distressed that are just not quite on those not, lists yet. Not showing symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, no, I hear you. So my other two questions, not to cut ahead, but um, A, what does the phone call look like? What is the, like, when they call, like, how does that go? And then you said you were running acquisitions. I imagine like once they qualify them in some way, which I want you to tell me how they qualify them through the phone call and set an appointment, you will go in for like the close. And what does that conversation look like? Like when you're in as the acquisitions guy, locking them up on contracts. Yeah, for sure. So they're screening for sellers is super basic. We don't want them making a decision. We made a mistake in the past where we wanted them to like make a decision whether or not they thought that they were motivated. And we found out that there were some some times where uh, they missed a few people that um, they had. They were just using smoke screens to not show that they had problems uh, underneath their situation, right? So the only filter that callers use in our company is whether or not they would like to, uh, essentially, are they raising their hand saying, yes, I would like an offer on my house. That's it, right? So it's super basic. Hey, uh, the call goes something like, hey, Mr. Seller. Uh, no, let me take it back. <laughs> um, for, let's say I'm calling you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you pick up the phone. Hey, Sterling. Yep. Hey, this is um, Sash. From uh, home buyer link, I'm calling you about your property on one to three main street. Just want to see if you'll consider selling it. You tell uh, me yes. For maybe the right price. Maybe okay for the right price. Okay, excellent, man. Can you tell me a little bit, a little bit about the condition of the property? And then it's just they ask four. We call them pillars. So it's condition, uh, motivation, if they can, right? How do you how do you how do you ask the motivation? What what got you interested in selling? Okay. Just something basic, uh, nothing too like intrusive. Um, and if they get it, good. If not, we tell them just move forward to the next. Uh, the next question is the timeline. When would you like to sell the property by? And the last question is the price. If they can get a price from them, from them, good. If not, then whatever. Um, so those are the four pillars that they obtain information from and gather as much as they can. And that'll make any decisions whether or not you were a motivated seller or not. They just simply send it over. And the um once it passes over it actually goes next so in, in our acquisitions team we have a follow-up specialist and we have acquisition specialist so we have two follow-up specialists what they're doing is simply we have a lot big database now of like leads right so they're simply mm -hmm. working the database trying to get people on the phone because people go ghost you all the time they don't pick up the phone even though they already said they wanted to sell right so all their job all they're doing is like trying to ignite those conversations again and pass them off to our acquisition specialist. And on top of that, we have three acquisition specialists. So our acquisition specialists are the ones that will, they are, those three guys are here in the US and they are like closers, right? We like screen them for people that are like high caliber closers. And their conversation 
it's a, it's a two it's a two step call. The first step is we call it a process call. It's simply a call to find out um, whether or not the only filter that they're doing on the process call is whether or not they're ready to make a decision. Like, hey, Sterling, if if after we go through this through this call, if I answer all of your questions um, aside from price, are you going to be ready to make a decision, or or do you think you're not ready? And are you going to be ready in the next three to six months? If you tell me, hey, man regardless of what we do today i'm not going to sell for another six months okay then i will not continue that conversation with you i don't want to spend my time calling talking to you if you're not going to be ready right so i'll figure out what is it why is it that you're not ready to sell if we can find out a solution to that then i'll try to figure it out because you will be surprised how many people say well i don't want to sell it because um we have a tenant in the property Okay, well, well, maybe we can figure that out. You know, maybe we can figure out a way to like cash for keys or we take over the lease or something like that. Uh, but a lot of sellers don't know the thing, the right. solutions that we can offer them, right? So we figure that out. And if it's truly something that, oh, another six months because that's when I retire and that's when I will be selling the house. Okay, well, we'll talk then, right? Um, once you're ready to sell the property, then they go through that. Pro- if you tell me, yes, I'm ready to sell the property. Okay, excellent. Uh, we're just going to talk, we talk about the condition of the property again. We talk about why is it that you want to sell the property. And we really go deep into that motivation on that call. We really try to figure out why is it that, that you want to sell the property. We figured out if there's any roadblocks that will prevent us from doing business. And then we set up the expectation for the next call, which is going to be our offer call. So we'll tell you, Hey man, we're going to, um, I'm going to get with my team right now. We're going to put an offer together and I'm going to call you in the next two to three hours with an offer. And so they get off that phone call. We have an underwriter on staff that is just all he's doing all day is just writing offers for our acquisition guys. And so they go get their offer. The acquisitions guy calls later, three hours later. And we like to build a little bit of suspense on our offer calls, right? So we start first explaining like, hey, we got the offer ready for you. But first, before I give it to you, I need to explain to you how the process is going to look like if we do business. Um, if the offer is something you like and the process is something you like, would you be ready to tell me yes or no today? Uh, and if you tell me no, we always say this, right? We Sterling, if you tell me no, that's perfectly fine. I don't care. I just want to know that for sure. You're going to tell me yes or no. You're not going to tell me I'm going to think about it. And that's, we make super strong point that you tell me a yes or no at the end of the call. I don't want to hear, I don't, I want to think about it. And from there, uh, we go through the process and how it looks like doing business with us, signing a contract, going over the contract transaction, et cetera, et cetera. And then it becomes Hollywood, baby. We drop the offer. We tell you, Hey, Sterling, congrats. You probably were asking for like 250. Congrats. We got you the best offer. I'm so glad they finally approved me for an offer this week. I've been getting hammered by these underwriters in my team. They got me 110. <laughs> and, how, and how do they typically respond to that? <laughs> uh, dude, you get all sorts of uh, responses. <laughs> um, but that's it, man. That's from there. Obviously, we role play objections. Typically, that's where the most objections come from, right? Once you deliver the offer, they will tell you X, Y, Z as to why they can't accept that. And then it's their job to like overcome those objections. That's awesome. And and I'm serious. I'm going to connect with you offline with uh, my marketing guy that we're, we're kind of working on building this out. So I'd love to, to kind of connect on that if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. But I, I know that's 
that's not like what you're looking for in the future. I know you're looking towards big buildings and I know you, I want to get to that. But my first question is why, um, why are you, I feel like, I feel like you're skipping steps, right? Like why are you going from a wholesaling career to an, to a commercial real estate capital raising career? I feel like with that much access to that many discounted properties, why didn't you just flip a bunch yourself or buy a bunch of rental properties, you know, burrow them into rental properties? I think it's maybe you have had a different experience than me, uh, but this wholesaling business, I just feel like we have 31 employees, right? I feel like we're churning a lot to not get the equivalent what it feels like will be the equivalent result out of the business. We're doing good, obviously, right? This is what how I do my living. Just for the amount of effort that goes into it, I will expect a lot more results. And I think that's the primary driver for that. My partner and I got to a point where we decided uh, that we are just going to uh, make the business. We're not going to grow anymore. We're going to stay where we are and obviously grow linear at this point right because obviously if you're not growing every every year then you're probably not doing something right but right. we're not gonna try to grow exponentially 200 or 300 percent every year just a 20 percent growth year over year is perfectly fine and just stay where we are keep the systems the way they are and leave it as a cash flow in business uh we're gonna hire an operations person my partner and i don't really have an involvement in the business anymore like a, an actual position anymore we're just we're just overseeing that nothing breaks um but awesome. but that's 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 it um we're I, eventually gonna go right I, I was watching a youtube video i think this morning or yesterday morning and it was this guy on facebook friends with gary something i can't remember his last name but Turned out he's like Ryan Pineda's business coach. And so he was, you know who Ryan Pineda is? Yep. And and so they were on this this like YouTube interview, like you know, like all the other ones, like this one, you know. And what they were talking about is the impending recession and like how to shift your business around that. And and one of the main things they said was like, you know, pivot from flipping to wholesaling because it's a lot lower risk and it's a lot more scalable. So like when you're in a reset, you know, when you're going downhill, it happened to me. I bought a ton of houses to flip. And if I'd have sold them six months ago, they'd have been up here. But when I'm selling them now, they're going to be down here, you know, because because it took me six months to rehab and get them on the market versus if I was flipping contracts, you know what I mean? And I was turning them in 30 days, then I would have less exposure to the, you know, the the drop. So I just I don't I thought that was cool information. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you the biggest struggle that my partner and I bang our heads against the wall is, is the little problems that all of these properties have. It's just when when the wholesaler sells it to a person like you, the end buyer, we solved all of those issues for the seller and the transaction so that it will be a clean title and go through. And that's what gives the most headache and what makes this business the hardest. If if sellers did not have all of these problems, which is obviously what makes them sell at a discount, but because of all these problems is what makes it so hard. You have problems that sometimes we can't even solve. Uh, tenants that don't want to get out just because they feel like they're entitled to staying in the property just because they want to. And this is America, you know, and, and then, you, then you have people that um, have 
open permits in their house. They did a conversion that was not supposed to happen. And now they have code violations and we don't know where to even start to clean this up. And, and buyers are like, Hey man, we don't want to touch it unless you guys fix it. So now we have to, you know, we already put up all of this money up front to like get these deals and we get them under contract and we have all these problems and it's like, shit, dude, we better figure this out or not because every single deal that we have on the contract is already accounted for and us to make a profit, right? So we got to figure out all these little nuances that go along with each property. And just to give you a little bit more insight, so we spend about 70, 65 to 70 grand every month on just expenses on the business. And so like every month is like a race to just break, like if we can break even, then after that, sure. we're good, right? Sure. Uh, and and so an average deal size is about 20 grand. So like as long as we can do four deals, it's like we're in the we're in the we're in the black, right? If we can close four deals a month, we're in the black, and anything after that, we're just we're good. So every month is a race. So let's close four deals and then solve all these little problems. Um, and then um uh there was an oh, so the, all of the properties that we contract, we contract about 20 properties a month, and we end up canceling 50% of them because of all these oh. issues because of all the issues the property have if if it wasn't because of all those issues we'll probably close at 20 right um but i'm just i'm just doing some math here so you you contract how many about 20 a month and you cancel half so you got 10 or an average 20,000 so that's 200,000 in revenue on a business that operates off of 70,000 expenses sounds like it's going pretty well yeah, I mean that's that's now yeah. Some months we'll do one fifty, right? So one fifty to two hundred. That's kind of like I wish it was perfect, but you know it sure, goes sure. you go through the swings. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, that's great. I really appreciate you uh, humoring me and scratching my itch and walking through your model. That has been very very helpful. Um, but step one, I'm just going to send this this episode to my marketing guy before it even comes out. I'm going to be like, here, listen to this and write this down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, let's switch gears to kind of what you what you have been working on recently. You know, what we worked on together with Domains Landing, and that's um, what you're doing in the commercial real estate space. Yeah. Um, so my goal had always been to uh, do multifamily. I think it was just a matter of um and you hear you hear it often right if you play with uh thousands you will earn thousands if you play with millions you will earn millions um sure. and that's sort of what intrigued me to start um in multifamily since the beginning but i had this limiting beliefs that i had to i thought i had to start with single family homes before i could even start with doing big deals in multifamily knowing what i know now i i would have started with multifamily since back when that dude gave me that wholesaling book, I probably would have told him, told him, no, dude, I'm just going to go to the multifamily, right? But um, it did not happen that way. And I just eventually discovered that I could just start doing multifamily. And I thought I had to do it all in multifamily until I started learning more and more and discovered that there's different players to every single deal and everybody sort of brings something to the table. And that's what allowed me to start sooner. And I started discovering and figuring out what I really wanted to bring to the table on multifamily deals. Having already done a few flips and dealt with the struggles of getting properties under contract and getting them to the finish line, I did not want to 
go and do the same thing again in multifamily, right? I want to do something different, something that was a little more exciting for me that will take me, if we're going to keep this wholesaling business, I want to do something that is sort of in a different lane that I know I can provide value and that I can be good at. And that's when I discovered that if you can raise capital, you can, it's such a valuable skill in multifamily because the operators are so busy operating the deal that mm-hmm. they they want capital raisers, right? They they want partners that can bring equity to the deal and partner with them. So when I saw that and I saw the opportunity that I could bring to pilots, I said, you know what? I'm going to marry the two together and I'm going to go all in awesome. in that direction. Everybody, everybody I know who niches down like that on somebody and who they're going to help, right? Is, is just, uh, they seem to blow it out of the water. You see it a lot with like, like ADI, AD or active duty passive income where they cater towards like military folks or are you catering towards like you know pilots or somebody catering towards women or somebody catering towards doctors you know what i mean where they where they cater to where, where they create this inclusive environment of folks that like understand their particular situation it just really helps with the community building um i don't i don't have any any like you know niche like that when it when it comes to me but i've always been envious of you know what i've found is that um with my capital raising is that a lot of the people that that tend to feel comfortable investing with me are people that are close to real estate and um but but like like realtors like brokers you know they own real estate a brokerage and they make a lot of money doing it and and you know i love i love targeting them i also have like um other, you know, insurance agents and, and lenders and brokers there, you know what I mean? Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's awesome that you, you understand the struggle of the pilot. You understand, you know what I mean? A lot, and, and I'm sure a lot of people, I, I imagine aviation is something that a lot of people go into because they love it. It's like being a doctor, you know, like a lot of like, yeah, it'd be cool to have a financial safety net, but like, it doesn't matter how much some doctors make, they're going to go and they're going to help little kids because they like helping little kids. You know what I mean? And I'm sure it's the same thing with pilots. Like you don't, you don't, fly because you know what i mean because you need a paycheck like you fly because you love to fly right i I assume it you know what i mean and and no you you, you're exactly right most most pilots are very passionate about flying you know that's that's their world that's what they do they go flying on their days off uh so so yeah they're they're very passionate about it but you're exactly right and the they go in it with the uh passion in mind first and not the money. Um, and I heard a story one time, I think it might've been like in rich dad, poor dad, maybe I think it might've been like Robert Kiyosaki telling the story where he was like sitting next to a pilot and he was there like, he's like, Oh, what do you do? He's like, Oh, I'm a real estate investor. Like, Oh, isn't that risky? He goes, I mean, not as risky from every source of my income coming from one company, like American airlines is the only person who gives you a check. I collect checks from a thousand different people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And dude, I've, I've had the conversation with many pilots. Like we'll be on a flight going somewhere, you know, and you know, sometimes like two hours just sitting there talking and um, they will tell me, dude, if the airline shuts down, they say, or like, if I just, if I can't get my medical renewed for whatever reason, right? Some disability happens. Uh, 
I don't know what else to do. Like, this is the only thing I've known how to do for the last 20, 30 years. So they will legitimate be concerned. Like, I don't know what will happen with me. You know, I don't know. what I don't have any other skills. I never really did anything else. So luckily I was young enough when all these conversations um, were happening and and in the cockpit when flying with all pilots I had been doing it for a long time. And it just got me thinking along those lines as well. I was like, wow, you know, these guys are having these concerns. And ever that sort of started turning my gears thinking about those situations, right? So there's there's many reasons why it will benefit fit uh pilots not only do they get to have a separate income stream, but they get to have a, like the it will be like the safety net, right? That the second instant income stream will be the safety net. But not only that, but they also uh, you can pull back on flying as much, and you only fly whenever you like. Yeah. One of the best, um, I will say, privileges that I had when I had my real estate business and I was flying at the same time is that I could drop the trips if I didn't want to go fly. Because there's a lot of pilots that one that's all they do. The only way for them to earn more income is to pick up extra flying, right? Mm -hmm. So there's always pilots willing to pick up more flying. So what I was doing, I started needing the income less and less every time. So I'll just post all my trips and nice. other pilots will pick them up and I will end up having a whole month off. So my message to many pilots now is like, you hear them complain like, hey, I miss my kids' baseball game. You know, I miss their soccer game or practice or sure. I missed uh, Christmas. Or, you know, so I was like, dude, just if you start having that second income, just drop your trips, you know, do whatever you want. Yeah. Take, modify your schedule. So it just gives you such a freedom to do whatever you want. There's a running joke in the aviation industry that they say you're not a real airline pilot until you've been furloughed twice and divorced three times. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully with doing this, it will, it will, um, you will not care. If you get furloughed from the airline, you will not care. And hopefully it will avoid having uh, that many divorces on pilots, you know, because obviously they get divorced because they're gone all the time. Yeah, yeah no, same, no, it's, it's like that in a lot of industries. So I remember I started investing in real estate when we had a layoff and, and I didn't get laid off, but I remember that, that like sinking pit of, in my stomach feeling for a month leading up to when they were announcing who was getting laid off. And I was like, well, I never want to go through that again. So I started as like a safety net. And then, you know, fast forward two years, I had all these rental properties and, and, and like, I was okay. And the same thing happened again. And like, I just didn't care. And like all of my peers were like, they, I could, I could tell by the look on their face. They had that like nauseous, like, holy shit, what am I going to do if I lose my job? I've got a mortgage. I've got car notes. I've got kids in private school. Like, well, what am I going to do? And I just like didn't care. And I just, it's just, it was so night and day, my reaction to the exact same situation two years apart. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. It's for the, for the sake of time, I'm going to hop over to our radio round. So I just got three questions to ask you. The first one is what's your favorite book? Favorite book um, is going to be, we talked about it in, prior to the show, it's What It Takes. Um, yes. It's from Stephen Schwarzman, uh, the founder of Blackstone. Uh, very, um, it, it's so liberating to see someone to get to that success level and explain mm. over and over in the book how much of a normal guy with no special talents he is. Yeah, It just yeah. tells you like, dude, I can do it too. 
Yeah, I love it. It was it was great. Um, next one is, what's your favorite quote? Favorite quote? I don't have a quote per se, but um, I just came back from this mastermind this past weekend. Um, and one what thing master, that... Kept, what mastermind? Is uh, Race Masters with Hunter Thompson. Oh, cool. And one thing that kept being thrown around throughout the mastermind um, was money follows speed. And essentially speed was the X factor for anything that happens. Anything that you do is um, the the faster you get it done, like looking for action. Don't look, don't look for, for perfection. Just, just do things, right. Just start taking action. It's so powerful and not knowing I I feel like I've always acted like that. Like I'm not really good at, having things perfect done is do better than done is better than perfect um, yeah and i a, just jump in and do it yeah yeah there's a, there's another book about the lean startup is about that concept it's like get to market you know what i mean get to market and get feedback and then adjust as you go along because you can sit there and and you know obsess and get stuck in analysis paralysis and never take action i mean for years while somebody else haphazardly like screw this huge you know portfolio and they learned along the way, but at the end of the day, they got a huge portfolio and you never moved, you know? Um, yeah. That's cool. I love it. Um, what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Um, so I have a 10 month old. Um, so right now that's, that's the, the fun thing to do. Right. Um, there is, if I'm not working, um, I'm with him and just watch him do new things every day. Be Super careful. Fun. Be careful. I had one of those and it turned into a three-year-old. <laughs> uh, that's awesome yeah i've got i've got two boys i got three and 18 months and they're uh, they're a handful so, yeah oh i can imagine i don't i don't awesome. know if i can handle another one man man <laughs> i uh i thought back to back was going to be like an easy solution and that was that was a, that's what they say right yeah that's what they say back to back is the best um dude i used to have hair before before he was born <laughs> yeah so uh how can our listeners uh, get in touch with you learn more about you invest with you yeah for sure um i haven't actually something very special for anybody that is out there um whether this applies to your industry or not and you're looking to get more of your uh, freedom and your time back especially if you're an airline pilot and you're looking to uh, never miss another baseball practice or soccer practice from your kid and want to avoid getting divorced uh, hop over to my website and grab a free ebook. I explain everything there on how to accomplish that. Is uh, bernhardcapital.net forward slash ebook. Bernhard with a T. Bernhard with a T. <laughs> I, I clarify because we're when we talked about this when when we were together. Uh, we're in I'm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we have a Bernhard Capital. The guy who, uh, who owned the the Shaw Group, which was a big Fortune 500 company down here, that my whole family worked for. So uh, I, I always, I always make sure you, you know the T because if you go to Bernhard Capital without a T, it's a completely different guy, completely different company. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't make sure that it's from Orlando, not Louisiana. If you want to yeah. come with me. <laughs> Sash, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really enjoyed it. I learned a ton. I'm uh, super excited to take everything I learned back to the team. And um, I'm sure that our listeners that are like looking for a way to get in, 
Um, you know, whether they're like starting from nothing and want to build a wholesaling business or they're a busy professional that wants to invest passively to kind of create that safety net you talked about and that that side income. Um, either way, I think our listeners are going to get a ton out of it. So thanks so much. And I, uh, I'm glad we had a chance to meet. I'm glad we had a chance to do this. And I look forward to keeping up with you on your journey. Yeah, thank you, Sterling. I appreciate you having me on. This episode was brought to you by Crestworth Capital. If you're a busy professional and ready to make passive income from real estate investing, then go to CrestworthCapital.com where you'll be able to download a free copy of our ebook to help you get started today. Until next week, happy investing.